Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Techspansive. This is Sean Dubervac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Radical Research. This week, we're going to jump into a couple of stories that we've been tracking. The first is that uh, Trump visits Apple in Texas, despite me being based here in Washington, D.C., and Ross being based in New York. We have tried to avoid the <laughs> politics of tech, and uh, it, it seems like we just can't escape it. So we'll be talking a little bit about Trump's visit to Apple in Texas. We'll talk a little bit about what we see as evolving company policies. There's been several announcements this week and in recent weeks that talk about how companies are changing the way they think about data and information and transparency. We'll hit on Lenovo's bringing back the Motorola Razor. So Moto Razor is coming back and Icon returns, as they like to say. And then we will close with a look at PayPal's announcement this week that they are buying Honey for a cool $4 billion. But first, the story we've all been watching this week, Trump visits Apple in Texas. I, I think it's important to note that we're going to be talking about this kind of from, at least I plan to talk about it, more from the kind of cost benefit to Apple um, is, is the angle that I tend to see it from rather than uh, delve uh, deeply into uh, uh, you know, the, the my you know personal thoughts on on uh, Trump the person or, or the presidency, uh, but uh, I thought it was uh, you know it's, there's been a lot of commentary about how Tim the the Tim Cook uh, the the Tim Apple uh, Trump uh, uh, relationship um, and uh, you know my thought on it is that this was kind of a uh, an easy win. Uh, for for Tim Cook in in many ways, uh, this is a plant that uh, you know they had been committed to for a number of years uh, for building the the Mac Pro in in the U.S. Uh, and uh, it is from a revenue perspective for Apple uh, a nearly insignificant <laughs> product. It is a uh, it is a prestige product. Um, and a, a relative, a very low volume product, you know, certainly compared to uh, to the iPhone. Uh, and um, uh, you know, Tim Cook uh, has uh, some serious concerns about the uh, the, the tariffs uh, that are being imposed, because even though the Mac Pro is being built in the U.S., it uses uh, a number of components uh, that are uh, going to be coming in from China. And uh, he has requested uh, exceptions uh, for tariff policy on some of those. And apparently he has gotten some, but not all, maybe uh, most, but not all. Uh, so in um, uh, showing uh, Trump the factory uh, is, is a great way of showing goodwill, I think, um, from his perspective uh, to show, look, we're, you know, we're committed to American manufacturing and, you know, maybe a rounding error in terms of our product line, if even that, but look, you want, uh, you want to see a plant? We got a plant. Um, you know, the last thing is that as many people brought up, uh, Apple does not own the plant. You know, right. the plant is owned by Flex Limited, uh, which is the new name of Flextronics, you know, which, which is a, uh, of course, a, a Chinese company. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I haven't seen any allusions to the factory, uh, you know, the parent company behind the factory being Chinese, but, but that is the case. So. Well, so I think it reveals a lot of really interesting nuances about trade policy right now. And obviously mm-hmm. this is a, a big topic in Washington, D.C. and the, the impact of tariffs. And I've been do, doing a lot of work in this space lately. And, and I think it's less clear that this is a, a good win for Apple. It's unclear who invited whom, you know, did Trump right. call up and say, hey, I'm coming to Austin and we'll be there to announce the groundbreaking on the new facility that they're building there. That he, that he built. That's right. So <laughs> that Apple, he opened. Well, a- Apple, right, last year announced that they'd be, be expanding their presence in Austin, adding another right. facility that will house up to 15,000 employees over the long, long run. They'll be the biggest private employer in Austin. And really the, bigger, the, than, uh, bigger than Dell? Yes, this will really? make wow. this will make it at least according to Apple's uh, release. This will make them the the over the longer term the longest. Oh, I see. The, uh, I see. the the facility will start with five thousand, and these will be uh, obviously non manufacturing yes. employees that are in the one hundred thirty three acre uh, right campus. That A lot building. of design, yeah, design, marketing, probably finance, everything else. So this right. will be one of. Apple's largest presence outside of Cupertino mm-hmm. as well. So it's a big investment that they're, uh, that they're making. And so, uh, but it's because the, there aren't uh, tariffs on key inputs that are going into the, to the Mac Pro, which enable manufacturing in the U.S. to be viable and economically meaningful and, and profitable for Apple. Uh, if not, obviously, they'd, they'd make it outside of the U.S., and so it's kind of the exclusions of some of those tariffs that have been imposed that make this possible. And there's some of those nuances that are missed. And then I think also, like, this is the, the face of modern manufacturing in the U.S. You have mm. a company like Apple, which is historically classified as a manufacturer. And you could argue they are a manufacturer. They're designing products. They're having products made. But they're using partners like Flex in this instance to actually do the production and be part of their supply chain. And so it shows the complexities of this, of the supply chain, but all of those nuances get missed in a, uh, you know, in a shot taken on the factory floor. And, and um, well, you know, I, I don't, to be clear, I don't think it's um, any kind of betrayal in any way that, you know, Flex is the owner of the factory. There was the whole uh, thing in Wisconsin, right, where Flex uh, was going to build this, uh, I believe, TV panel factory uh, some time ago. And then there's been or with, uh, a Fox lot of Con. Foxconn, Foxconn, Foxconn yeah. sorry. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, discussion about how much of that actually came to fruition. But, um, you know, but, but, you know, tr- uh, Trump a- applauded that move. He, uh, you know, whether, whether, it's the i think he cares a little bit less about the you know wh- whether the company is is american i mean I, I think he would certainly want american companies to manufacture here but but he also wants to encourage um you know all 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 companies even those based outside the us to manufacture here uh and uh that's where a lot of the criticism of the policy has come in because uh 
you know, when when those um, uh, it, it, it's more difficult for those um, companies to justify, uh, you know, investment in America, um, given given some of the the trade tensions um, when when it comes to China. Sure. So, well, and it, yeah. and it puts manufacturing in the U.S. on unequal footing with manufacturing other places, and mm-hmm. Trump himself called uh, pointed out that uh, Tim Cook. The highlighted Samsung, this for, the, yeah. for him, right? That if he's going to manufacture in the U.S. and then he has to pay tariffs on the, on the products and the components right. that he imports, then he's at a cost disadvantage to those who are manufacturing outside of the U.S. and buying those components from similar supply chains. So this would be, of course, Samsung, Xiaomi, others who are able right. to uh, build very similar devices, but but outside of these tariffs that are imposed. So right, and then that's why the Mac Pro is a good uh, candidate for this because, you know, anyone who's going to buy that product, I mean, the only real competition is you know going to come from other, by and large. Well, I shouldn't say that, but you know, a lot of the competition would come from American companies. You know, Dell, HP, uh, Lenovo. You know, would probably be the main. Chinese uh, competitor there, uh, but you're talking about very powerful high-end workstations. I, I think it, you know, this this machine goes for like six thousand uh, dollars, and then you know, with accessories and add-in cards, you know, can easily reach uh, tens of thousands of dollars. So uh, it's definitely not a high-volume product. It's a super high-margin product, uh, and so you know, even though they take a hit on the tariffs, um, I don't necessarily think it it affects the overall competitiveness of of the mac pro very much well and they don't take a hit on the tariffs because they've gotten exclusions on a lot of those components on on a lot of them but not all yeah yeah so certainly more to come on this uh i think you know the other struggle is uh, when you look at the story is of course tim cook of apple is able to get prime time with uh with trump you know he it, it they both benefit from this i think it, I, I saw somebody tweet and i certainly agree that it highlights the strength and the importance of the u.s presidency that um you know that tim cook and apple would be open to having the president come and visit their their factory and again it's unclear who invited whom right uh, but Look, yeah, I mean, he, you know, Tim Cook has to do whatever he thinks is in the best interest of the company. And, um, you know, the, the publicity that he gets just from Trump's tweets uh, is, is probably worth the photo op, particularly given uh, the negative tweets uh, that uh, Trump has made about Apple in the past. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, if he can get tariff relief out of it, then awesome from his perspective, but, uh, uh, but, but getting into the good graces of, of even Trump's followers, um, you know, is, is, is a good, uh, you know, quote, free advertising. Well, do you uh, think it him. hurts him though? Do you think it, I mean, it seems there, like there's some risk of backlash. He's definitely gotten some negative, uh, coverage, you know, and I, I think probably the bigger risk is, is not even, a lot of the Apple customers, you know, who may lean more to the left, uh, but uh, but Apple employees, sure. right? Um, uh, particularly when you know he uh, came out so strongly in favor of DACA, and you know continues to uh, argue strongly in favor of of it, and you know obviously opposes the tariffs. Um, but you know, Sean, we've we've talked 
quite a bit about employee activism uh, on, on the podcast before, the protests at Amazon and, and Google. And, uh, you know, maybe it's a little surprising, actually, that we didn't see more uh, Apple employee uproar over this. But, you know, it's a, I, I get the sense it's a different culture. <laughs> yeah. 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 And maybe there was good communication within Apple that, mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. that has helped that. So, and they, and they see it as a win for Apple and in furthering Apple's aims to, to grow right. the marketplace. All right. So jumping on to the next story, we've seen a number of different areas where companies seem to be evolving their, their company policy. Apple, for example, where we were just talking about removed their rating and reviews section from all product pages on the website over the weekend. Twitter uh, this week rolled out its hide replies feature to its users globally. Uh, last week, we saw that Instagram announced it was expanding its test, making likes counts private to the rest of the world beyond. Uh, and I so, think we've seen good, uh, uh, generally positive reaction to that. Yeah. So, yeah. so it, it used to feel like companies that had data that they wanted to leverage that data in any ways that they could and that they would provide all of the metrics back to users. And now you see companies changing course to to some extent. Uh, you saw also this week uh, a really kind of nuanced approach from Google that they announced that they were going to essentially um, limit political advertising. So they have these new ad rules for political advertisements, which limits micro-targeting to certain ages, genders, and uh, general location categories. So they're going to start enforcing that in the UK in the coming weeks, and presumably that will uh, start to show up in all political ads. So the beauty of digital advertising, of course, is that you can micro-target who you want to speak to. Mm-hmm. And it looks like to um, to address some of the concerns around political advertisements, Google's actually going to roll some of those features back and limit the full capabilities of the underlying digital digital data and digital information. So it's some kind of some interesting nuanced approaches we've seen in the last couple of weeks from companies and probably a lot more coming. Uh, yeah, I would... Um... I think that there are uh, different uh, incentives for some of these moves. So in the case of the likes, in the case of Twitter hiding replies, it is the removal of some level of transparency and and some level of of exposure for the benefits of the user um, because it it serves as a way to uh, either protect the user. It serves essentially both moves are protecting the user from uh, negative reaction, or at least in the case of likes, lack of a positive reaction. Uh, and, uh, you know, we talked a bit about the Instagram phenomenon on, on the, uh, on the podcast before. I think it's very positive that Twitter is, uh, finally doing, you know, seems to be making some concrete moves to reduce the, uh, you know, bullying, uh, on on the platform because uh, you know it, it has seemed to be uh, you know perhaps the most ab- abusive uh, of those platforms um, you know whereas the things like like hiding the reviews uh, that to me seems to be more about um, 
preventing, maybe, maybe you could you could say it's related because in some ways it's also about preventing abuse. Uh, mm -hmm. I would not be surprised if, you know, one of the reason Apple has decided to do this is because of fake reviews, uh, competitors perhaps, you know, trying to uh, get, get poor reviews uh, placed there. Uh, fascinating article in uh, BuzzFeed today that I was mentioning uh, called her Amazon purchases are real. The reviews are fake uh, about a woman who has uh, received hundreds of free Amazon products worth tens of thousands of dollars uh, by signing up uh, with these um, new brands coming out of China that are desperate to uh, gain uh, some presence and momentum on Amazon and so who are giving away uh, free free product in exchange for five-star reviews, oh, and who will also refund the price of the product. So, uh, so it shows up on Amazon as, as this woman's transaction. Uh, she gets reimbursed on the back channel, uh, and you know the article even details how uh, they provide instructions to search for certain terms uh, in order to make the, uh, the, the purchase more, look more genuine uh, and to wait five or six days before posting the review uh, so that it looks like you're gaining more experience with it. So really, um, you know, a kind of a brilliant example of, of hacking the, uh, the Amazon review process. Um, and that would yeah. be a great time to remind listeners to go on to wherever you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> leave a five-star review, send, <laughs> send, send us a bill. We will make it worth your while. <laughs> make it sure. worth your while. We'll, we'll yeah. send you some headphones that we've tried out on Amazon. So Five-star headphones. That's right. Leave yeah, that you may not have heard review. of the brand, but you will. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Uh, so, um, I, I, you know, actually, I, w I wonder if there there has been any uh, activity like that in, in the podcast uh, space. I, yeah. I certainly would not be surprised. Well, and so but you see, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why you see Instagram hiding the the likes because there's this whole micro economy that's developed around being able to yes buy likes and and buy reposts and and anything else that any other metric that influencers may leverage in order to uh, garner uh, monetization on that platform. I think it's, you know, one of the other things that I think fascinates me is how these platforms have monetized. So Instagram has this close friend feature where you can mm, right. have certain things that you share with your close friends. I've seen some influencers sell that as a subscription for $10 <laughs> a month. So you can become a, a close friend of that influencer and get right insider information or giveaways mm. that only go to friends so you know there's a lot of uh economics that are that are taking place on these platforms driven by the metrics and so you you see to your point ross uh the platforms hiding information for different reasons i mean instagram arguably is is hiding it so that it just doesn't become uh, a, a completely monetized platform that people are, are trying to, to game. Twitter is probably rolling out some of these features and hiding some of the information to um, limit and restrict some of the negativity that can, that can grow on different, uh, you know, different posts and different comments. And, um, you know, the, on the Instagram thing, uh, you know, we talked about alter, you know, alternating, uh, alternative sources of revenue um, 
for Instagram influencers and the ability to enable sales on the platform. Uh, looks like Google is taking a, a, a cue from that uh, and is going to be enabling Gmail apps on uh, mobile devices to be able to uh, initiate purchases right from email messages. Uh, so um, excellent timing there with the, uh, the holiday season uh, imminently in front of us. Um, uh, and it just, just goes to show how they can leverage um, what, what has been a pretty sleepy area recently in terms of email uh, and, and make it more transactional. Yeah, well, and, that, and that's a trend we're probably seeing everywhere is that there's a very strong focus on making platforms uh, transactional. This is probably mm -hmm. a great time to, to shift to the story that we, we were following this week where PayPal announced that they would buy Honey. Mm -hmm. This is their largest acquisition ever. They're paying $4 billion for it. So to, to put that into perspective, we saw that Google bought a Fitbit for like, 2.3 billion or something like that. So PayPal paying up significantly for uh, Honey, paying something like 40 times revenue for for Honey. Even if uh, sales were to to double this year, they're still paying something like 20 times times sales. Um, they bought Braintree, which owned Venmo, for 800 mm. million dollars. Mm. So uh, paying significantly more for for Honey, uh, but a much smaller. Uh, user, they have only have about 17 million active monthly users. Right. They definitely skew younger. So for those of you who don't know, Honey is uh, essentially a. Um, uh, it started as a browser add-in that would allow would essentially clip automatically coupon. find yeah. coupon codes. Yeah. yeah. Find coupon codes for you. They did launch apps this year for both iPhone, uh, iOS, and Android. Android coming out just a couple of months ago which is a, a, a shopping platform. So in some ways they're building a, um, a way to, to shop and to, to peruse. And, and I think their value proposition is that Honey uh, claims to have a, a greater ability at actually closing sales. So you have fewer, uh, um, you have fewer deserted carts through, mm. uh, through Honey. And, and that would make sense. People probably are, are, abandoning carts when they go to find a coupon code, something right. like 75% of all carts. You're assured, you're assured yeah. that you're getting the lowest price. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So they're, uh, they're doing that. So we've seen a lot happening in the, the wallet space lately. Uh, of course, Apple pay and everything they're doing with the Apple card, uh, Google and what Google pay is doing. We saw just a couple of weeks ago, PayPal, getting into the game with with paypal i think it's called paypal or sorry uh, facebook with facebook pay uh you had uber mm. kind of organizing and structuring all of their payment tools under uber money so there's venmo a lot, card yep venmo so yep. you got a lot, lot happening in this payment space and it feels like going back to what you had just mentioned ross that that some of it is around taking the value you've got in these platforms and then trying to figure out how to make them a bit more transactional. It, it's clear that we're getting more comfortable with, with uh, digital wallets. Um, we're getting comfortable paying in those spaces. Starbucks, I think has definitely shown what, uh, what, how valuable a payment mm -hmm. component can be to help uh, lock in 
users and, and help build the brand out. So there's some really interesting things happening in, in the payment space as well. Well, I, you know, I would say to your point about uh, the premium that uh, PayPal <clears throat> paid for uh, for Honey versus Venmo. Venmo was really more of a marketplace consolidation play because uh, they had been rolling out that functionality. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a lot of overlap. Um, so I, I think that was really more about just, you know, consolidating and, and eliminating a competitor. Uh, Honey... I, I think the interesting thing there is to see how Amazon uh, reacts to this, because you know that a huge percentage uh, of those transactions are, are happening on Amazon. I, I don't know if they've uh, revealed any numbers on that, but it's got to be huge. Uh, and so one thing that Honey does is um, uh, it, it will allow you to set uh, price drop alerts, which is kind of interesting. So you can see the historical pricing of an item uh, and, uh, and and be alerted if it drops below a certain threshold. So, uh, you know, that kind of ties into the assurance thing that you mentioned uh, earlier that, uh, oh, look, you know, this is the lowest it's been in, you know, three months. I, I'm probably pretty safe buying <clears throat> at uh, at this point in time. They don't really... What they don't, what I haven't really seen a lot from them is in the the old comparison shopping bot space, and maybe they're doing more in the apps. But you know, it used to be that the big disintermediation threat to Amazon were these, uh, you know, like Shopping.com back in the day, sure. which would do all this comparison thing. Uh, well, but, it, yeah. it turns out. Amazon really is the always, cheapest. Always had, yeah. Or, <laughs> yeah. or if they weren't, you know, they would just make themselves the cheap. You know, they would adjust the price dynamically in real time. Right. Uh, and so so I, I think that's the biggest danger. You know, you mentioned all these other platforms. Certainly Google Pay, Apple Pay have an advantage as the platform owners. So if I'm PayPal, you know, I, I have to be a, a bit concerned. Uh, and, uh, and, and so, you know, my concern is that, as, as long as they're net positive for Amazon, uh, I, I don't think Amazon would get aggressive about blocking them. But I also don't see why Amazon wouldn't just roll out the same functionality. Well, and, and, and you did see that. I mean, I think part of this is motivated by PayPal realizing that they have to write their future now. They've, you know, they were rolled off of and spun out of eBay. They were, they were mm-hmm. purchased by eBay originally Pur- right. back in the early aughts. Then they were spun out in uh, I believe 2015. And then uh, just recently, eBay announced that they would switch to a, per- a different preferred uh, mm. payment structure. And so that, that will obviously hurt the transaction totals of, of PayPal. Right. In, the, in the acquisition presentation, PayPal noted one of the key benefits of this acquisition is that it allows them to move beyond checkout, reaching consumers at the beginning of the shopping journey. So mm. to, to your point, this might be a, a new approach for PayPal, that it isn't just about paying for the transaction, but that it, they can add value along that whole path to purchase. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So more to come there. I think we're going to still see uh, over the next year a, a lot more happening in the, the payment space. There's some consolidations taking place both across platforms, but also within platforms. And I think what you saw Uber doing with Uber Money is an example of that. And it will be interesting to see if 
they roll out additional features, not just for their drivers, but even potentially for their their uh, riders and their passengers, mm -hmm. because they know a lot about the individuals. They know what neighborhoods they're traveling from. They know what neighborhoods right. they're traveling to. Even just taking the basic demographic details and income data that's available for those areas, you can get pretty good at predicting the the income of an individual driver or the income of an individual passenger. So I think there's going to be some really interesting things happen over the next year as these platforms think about how do we move into new spaces and, and offer new financial mechanisms and tools that we haven't offered in the past. So more to come in that area. And our final story we wanted to hit on today is that the flip phone, the flip phone is back. <laughs> the flip phone has returned. Say that five times quickly. Throwback, yeah. Yeah, Mo Motorola is bringing Thursday. Motorola is bringing back the razor. I'm sure that this raised some heads in uh, Canada among old BlackBerry well, executives, saying, "Oh, uh, wait, if the razor's coming back, can we bring back the BlackBerry?" So. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, you know, what they have done is, of course, you, in the classic Razor, the, the top half of the clamshell was the screen, and the bottom half is the keypad. Uh, and taking advantage of uh, modern folding screen wizardry, uh, they have now made the entire surface a screen. So uh, it folds down. It's a little bit wider, fatter uh, than, than the old school Razor. Uh, but when you open it up, it is essentially the dimensions of a modern smartphone in the middle uh, um, when when fully stretched out. Um, so uh, so the idea, you know, we, we just as as Samsung uh, has a, uh, you know, when, when you fold out the device, uh, the Galaxy Fold, you get something uh, a little bit wider than a, a standard smartphone. They have also shown concepts where something is the size of uh, today's modern smartphone, but when when you fold it down, it just makes it a little more convenient to carry in the pocket. Um, it, it's an interesting um, design, and uh, one thing that they did that I, I don't necessarily think was a, a great play, but but which is in keeping with the old design, uh, is they, they kept like you may remember the the old razor had kind of like that fat chin at the bottom, kind of like that bump at the bottom mm -hmm. of the phone. Mm -hmm. uh, so they they kept that. Um, I I almost kind of wonder if if they would have been better off uh, like not invoking all this nostalgia. I, I I think that there you know certainly was something satisfied about satisfying about closing that device to hang up the phone. You know there was a, a kind of a definitiveness about it uh uh and it was the, a, a satisfaction about it uh but um uh look the the idea is that a lot of excitement about folding phones uh they had a folding phone of sorts uh in in the 80s uh and uh you know they're they're just trying to make a play there now you know this is a company that has faced a really tough road um, since uh, even since the acquisition by Lenovo and they are focused on kind of value branding uh, with their G line. Um, so those phones probably, you know, have an average price of uh, certainly under $400. 
uh, probably under $300. And, you know, this, this thing is $1,500. So, um, you know, who's going to buy this thing? Uh, it, it doesn't really offer um, a, a lot of, uh, like, extra work area. You know, there, there is some cachet there. Uh, there is, you know, if you miss the idea of hanging up a phone by closing it, you know, and you're willing to pay a significant premium for that, uh, then, uh, you know, then you might have interest. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I, I think it's going to be a, a very tough play for them. This is, by the way, the second time that Motorola has tried to play on Razer nostalgia. Uh, they, they also did a candy bar uh, a number of years ago that they called the Droid Razer. Uh, which was a very thin phone, but other than that, you know, was was pretty much like most Android smartphones, um, and you know that didn't really buy them a lot. So uh, it's going to be a Verizon exclusive. Um, so if if you're on Verizon, this uh, this will be an option for you, uh, and uh, you know, hopefully the availability and durability will be a little bit better than what we have seen. Uh, from other vendors in the space. So. Well, well, and it, it definitely speaks to, and we've talked in recent weeks on the podcast about the role of screens on portable computers, on smartphones, if you will, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. So we talked about what Microsoft is trying to do here next year with having dual screen devices, obviously right. Samsung and others with the flexible displays and the bendable displays. And, and so... Um, you know, I, I think it speaks to a period moving forward where we might use these devices a, a little different. It's funny that you, Ross, m- you know, mentioned shutting the phone and, and shutting the, the, the clamshell case to hang up the phone where, we one, we don't use these devices for telephony right. uh, very much anymore. <laughs> and when we do, we probably have headphones on or, or or bluetooth you know some bluetooth device whether we're in a vehicle or or something else so probably very rarely will we need it for a for phone functionality but it'll be interesting to see if new use case scenarios emerge out of the device it is nice that it is you know that it becomes a little more compact so there is maybe a, a form factor charm yeah. to it that uh, maybe that uh Maybe Motorola, maybe the next thing they'll bring back is like the original 80s, you know, Gordon Gecko yeah, yeah, phone yeah. and put like a Car nuclear phone. reactor in that thing, you know. Uh, yeah. Uh. <laughs> I, my, my very first car had a car phone antenna on it. So I'm a 16-year-old ah. kid and I left, of course, left that there. I, I didn't have the money to buy a car phone to go uh. with that antenna, but I left the, uh, the small antenna there on the back. Um, that was my... Uh, Ghetto, it's like the modern uh, day Sirius XM prestige antenna, right? Even yes. if you don't subscribe to the service. That's right. So I, yeah. I had left that there. Uh, but uh, so it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I think it does speak to the, the changing form factor of smartphones. And they, and arguably ph- phones haven't changed that much lately. They've mm. We've seen the sensors on the phones change as more camera sensors show up both on the front and the back. We've obviously seen the real estate get bigger, but um, the, the next year, the next wave of this is probably some type of foldable phones or, or dual screen phones. And it'll be interesting to see how we use those in different ways. 
I'll, I'll throw in just one last comment on this. You know, for this phone and the Fold, Galaxy Fold, um, I think it, it's also interesting to see what vendors are going to do with, you know, both phones have these kind of weird small uh, front screens, right? Because the main screen is hidden when the phone is folded. So, so they want to have some way of giving you like notifications, you know, and, and some kind of access. So they both created these little, you know, mini screens on, on the fronts of the phones when, when they're folded. And the one on the Galaxy Fold is very narrow. And this one is kind of squat, you know, and, and squarish. Um, uh, which is also kind of a callback to the original Razer that had, you know, the clock uh, or the caller ID, you know, so you could see who was calling. Um, maybe, maybe that, I, I think that could be a benefit potentially, uh, cutting down a little bit uh, on the full interaction and, and providing sort of more of a glanceable interface as an alternative to a smartwatch or, or something like that. So um, I, I think that has some potential to, uh, change the way we, we interact with these devices. Yeah, I, I agree. And it'd be interesting to see what the killer app is, if you will, the killer features for those. Right. For that, that screen. So, well, uh, I think that's a good place to wrap it. Thanks everyone for joining us for another episode of Techspansive. Covered I'm a lot of ground. We did. We today, covered a, yes. a, a lot of ground uh, this week. So <laughs> yes. uh, I'm Sean Dubrovac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubrovac. And you can find me, Ross Rubin, on Twitter at Ross Rubin. We look forward to your comments, your questions. We look forward to those five-star five reviews. Ratings. Yes. Send the bills to Ross. And uh, <laughs> don't forget to join us next week for another episode of Techspansive.